You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 17. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Today, we're again looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And as we study our text today, it's important to remember that this is a personal letter written to a group of people in Corinth by their former pastor, and he knew them very well. He'd been there for about 18 months and then moved on to Ephesus to work with the church there. But the church in Corinth was now struggling. It was fraught with divisions and wrong beliefs. People were hurting. So Paul, the pastor, reached out. You know, the city of Corinth is a fascinating place. Let's look at it briefly. Corinth itself had a very strategic geographic location, as Jeremy mentioned a few weeks ago. Mainland Greece is made up of two large land masses, this big northern part connected to Europe, and the Peloponnese, a southern region that's connected to the north by just a very small isthmus of land, or land bridge. It was long and dangerous journey to sail all the way around the southern tip of Greece, and believe it or not, it was generally considered better to sail to Corinth unload everything on board and haul it four miles over land and then load it back onto a boat, sometimes even the same boat, to continue the voyage. The Greeks made a stone road to make this journey easier. It was about 10 or 20 feet wide and, and had wooden tracks on it in places as well. But you see, whoever controlled this road controlled most of the trade between Italy, Asia, and Egypt. And whoever controlled the, controlled the roadway made money. They charged fees to transport the goods. And, and people who waited for their goods to be transported, often there was a queue, they had to wait several days. They stayed in this town and they spent money. So Corinth became very prosperous and some people became very wealthy. And th with this wealth came class divisions, like we see in major centers today, like New York, where you have a small group of very wealthy people in a large working class struggling uh, to, to make ends meet underneath. You know, some of you are, just an aside, some of you are probably thinking, didn't they try and build, dig a canal? Well, they did. Julius Caesar tried, Alexander the Great tried, and Nero tried. None of them managed it. And finally, in 1893, after 12 years of digging, a canal was made and it exists today. So it was an important city for commerce, but also it had very strong defenses in war. You see, Corinth, it, the town, lay fairly low, but above it was a hilltop, and on top they built the Acro-Corinth, or Upper Corinth, and it was a huge walled area on this hill above the town. 
It had massive walls, three sets of gates that you had to break through, and uh, it was extremely easy to defend. It had a water source uh, on the top of the mountain that was enough to sustain 5,000 people if they were ever in siege. So many people lived in the lower city, but could flee to the upper city when in need. Not only was there a water source on the top of the mountain, but the people had actually dug a five kilometer long tunnel from the top of the mountain to the outside world to a place where most people didn't know where it came out so they could actually send people out uh, to get news or supplies if they were in siege or get help. The Acrocourt was an amazing strategic advantage in war, so it was a safe place to work and a great place to get wealthy. Corinth also had flourishing trade and manufacturing. It was known for bronze, pottery, and marble. And you know, the uh, wealthy people there sponsored artisans to come in, and it was a beautiful place. It also had very fertile land, and so it exported uh, a lot of olive oil with all the ships that were coming and going to the then known world. Corinth was a destination for religious pilgrims. There were 26 religious sites throughout Lower and Upper Corinth, and it was religiously very pluralistic, lots of options. The most famous temple was the Temple of Apollo. It was first built in about 560 BCE. Now, Apollo was one of the Olympian deities in classical Greek and Roman religion, and in fact, it was the national divinity of the Greeks. The original temple had 38 massive pillars, um, six feet across and 24 feet tall, and they were all single pieces of stone. Now, it's interesting, through the years, there have been earthquakes and many of them have fallen down, except seven are still standing. And when you look at the graphic for this preaching series, that's them. That's the temple of Apollo, Apollo that's still standing. There were many other temples as well. Aphrodite, Hermes, Hercules, Athena, Poseidon, uh, Demeter and Kor, Palamon, Sisyphus, many, many different uh, uh, religions and shrines in the place. And there was also a Jewish synagogue, and that's where Paul went to start his church. And it's interesting, if you look at the ruins, they found the header that went over the door of the synagogue, and you can still read the inscription on it that says it was a place where the Jews met for teaching. Corinth was also a cosmopolitan city, made up largely of freed slaves, and it embraced many cultures. It prided itself in being non-judgmental, with no prejudices. You do you. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, there were lots of sailors and travelers who came through with all these shipping, shipping things, and the travelers often felt anonymous. And they would do things in Corinth that they would never have dreamed of back home, where everyone knew them. That, combined with the temple prostitution we'll talk about more in a minute, that led to a really immoral culture. It was sort of the New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas of the known world. Culture said, don't judge, anything goes. And that's what Paul is pushing against in this passage. You see, Paul is speaking to specific things he observed while he was there, or had heard about since he was leaving. The letter was personal and geographically and culturally specific. And yet, it's entirely relevant for us today. We're reading from 1 Corinthians 3, 
10 to 17. And although there's a lot in this passage, we'll be focusing on three main points, the foundation, the building, and the temple. First, the foundation, verses 10 and 11. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Remember, Corinth was a pluralistic society, religiously tolerant, a cultural melting pot. Lots of people and all kinds of gods, and people worshipped and trusted multiple gods at the same time. But Paul is focusing intentionally here. He says that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only hope, the only true life. Paul's directly opposing the Corinthian culture, calling them to be faithful to Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 11 says, for no one can lay any foundation other than, one, than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Let's just consider their religious climate for a moment, and then we'll consider ours as well. Apollo was the most important deity in the city, and his temple was the most important temple in the city. Now, please, don't confuse this with Apollos, which is the person Jeremy talked about last week. There are two different things, Apollo and Apollos. Apollo was summarized as the god of light, music, and the sun. But more broadly, he was recognized as the god of archery and music and dance and truth and prophecy and healing and diseases and the sun and light and poetry, just about everything. And particularly, Apollo had the job, according to Greek mythology, to pull the sun across the sky by his four-horse chariot every day. He had the ability to see the future and had power over light. And many of us know the name Apollo from the American space program that landed people on the moon in the 1960s and 1970s. And that was in fact named after the, god, the Greek god Apollo. Apollo was both good and bad. He delivered people from epidemics, yet he could bring ill health and plague by his arrows. And people would bring their sacrifices to the temple and pray and pray for protection and for healing and for a prosperous future. The second most important god or goddess was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. She was able to bring about harmony and unity in physical relationships or in marriage or help with fertility. She was the protector deity of Corinth. And in that place, it was known for having temple prostitutes. In fact, according to the historian Strabo, up to a thousand prostitutes may work in that temple at any time, both male and female. Now, Strabo was known for his exaggerations, but even if he was twice out by two times, it's still hundreds of prostitutes working actively at the temple. And then in the evenings when the temple closed, many of them would come down in the city and continue their business. People would come and offer their prayers um, and engage with the prostitutes in order to earn the goddess's favor. The last temple in religion we're going to work at that was Asclepius, the god of healing. This temple served as the local hospital. It was very large. It was about a quarter mile from town and it was located over a spring that was enough to serve everyone in the facility. Travelers would stop by to see if they could get healed. 
And you know, a whole business uh, developed around this place where people, artisans would carve replicas of body parts out of stone, hands, feet, legs, heads, ears, whatever the problem was. And they would buy these and then present them at the sac as a sacrifice at the temple in a plea that they would get healed. And then they would take these stone body parts home as a reminder of their prayers. And in fact, if you look at museums around Corinth, you'll see whole rooms of these body parts that they have found in the ruins and have uh, preserved for people to see now. You know, in all these religions, the gods were aloof and distant. People brought offerings, did acts of worship and prayed in hopes that their efforts would be enough to earn the favor of the deity and they would be blessed. But they served and worshipped the God and then went home. They didn't stay. Now there were many religions in the, that the people of Corinth would be familiar with. Uh, 26 sacred sites. And you know, if believers in the church of Corinth had not personally worshipped before they were Christians in these temples, they knew lots of people who had. Many people looked to these gods for their security and hope. Their lives were defined by their connection to their faith. Their communities were shaped through common values, common experiences, and interactions around their beliefs. Now, today, we look at these religions, these idols, and say these people were simplistic, misled, naive. We would never think that way now. Many people today would say they don't believe in any god and that they don't worship anything. You hear that commonly in media and all around North America. But you know, I believe that's far from the truth. Whereas in ancient times, people trusted idols, which were often made of stone or wood or some other physical substance, today many people trust in much less visible things, but just as real. And the things we put our ultimate trust in are the things we worship. And if these things are not God, they're idols. I'm gonna say that again. If these things we put our ultimate trust in are not God, they're idols. David Foster Wallace was an American novelist and writer in the early 2000s. In fact, he died by suicide in 2008. He was by no means a believer. But his insights into the human condition are remarkable. And in a very famous commencement address he gave at Kenyon College in 2005, he says, and I quote, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Tim Keller, pastor and author, in his book Counterfeit Gods, describes idols thus. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Sounds like worship, doesn't it? Let me give you some examples. Many people make money an idol, either hoarding it for, for, for financial security or spending it continually to give them the monetary, a momentary sense of pleasure. You know, others make power an idol, feeling like if they just have a bit more influence, more control over their environment or the people in it, they'll finally be happy and finally have peace. You know, and they strive to climb the corporate ladder, they aspire to ever greater public office or anything else that makes others heed to their bidding. 
Other people make relationships an idol. Family, friends, community, popularity, spouses, kids. You know, idols can be whatever we turn to, consciously or unconsciously, that we think will give us the deepest happiness and peace. Keller says, an idol is something we look to for the things that only God can give. David Foster Wallace continues, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of a God or spiritual type thing to worship, again, he's not a believer, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they pl finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So, according to David Foster Wallace, everyone worships, and all we can do is to choose what we worship. And so, as believers, we should be okay, right? We've chosen to follow Jesus, to worship him, so we're all on the right track, aren't we? Well, my guess is that's what the, the Corinthian church wondered too. Weren't they already Christ followers, at least in name? But idolatry can happen inside the church too, and it can look good on the outside, but be dangerous indeed. Keller goes on, Idolatry functions widely inside com religious communities when doctrinal truths are elevated to a position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the righteousness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. This is a subtle but deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry within religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into a counterfeit god. Spiritual gifts like talent, ability, performance, growth are often mistaken for what the Bible calls spiritual fruit, like love and joy and patience and humility and courage and gentleness. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. Though we give lip service to Jesus and our, as our example and inspiration, we're still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude leaves, leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness, and the oppression of those whose views differ. These toxic effects of religious idolatry have led to widespread disaffection with religion in general, and Christianity in particular. Many, thinking that they've tried God, have turned, their, turned to other hopes with devastating consequences. You see, we have to keep returning to Jesus and not let anything be added to him. Paul's call to the Corinthian church and to us today is to make Christ and Christ alone the center of everything, not Christ and moral living, not Christ and a political position, not Christ and allegiance to a, a personality, just Jesus Christ.
John 13, 34 and 35 says and quotes Jesus, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Paul is saying our foundation should be Jesus Christ, who loved us before we existed, who created a way for us to come to God, who paid for our salvation by his very life. We don't come to God by our own good works. We come by grace through Jesus. And it's on the foundation of Jesus Christ that we personally build our own lives, and it is on the foundation of Jesus Christ that we come together as a church. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Ah, let's keep thinking about this as we move forward in the passage. We've looked at the foundation, verses 10 and 11. Now let's consider the building, verses 12 to 15. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of metals, materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. The two ways to have a building collapse and to have poor, are to have a poor foundation or build with inferior materials. Now, I believe the inferior materials that Paul's referring to here, wood, hay, straw, is referring to the worldly wisdom that Paul spoke about in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, yet when I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon to be forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. And that would be Christ crucified. Paul's calling the Corinthians to build with gold, silver, and jewels. Now, many people have tried to allegorize these things, and I don't think that's appropriate, but he's using words that remind us of the Temple of Jerusalem built by Solomon. And you'll see it in Habakkuk 2 or 1 Chronicles 22, uh, 2 Chronicles 3.6. And as Gordon Fee says, who's a Bible scholar and commentator, Paul simply affirms what for him is a self-evident reality that the kind of building one constructs, that is, the kind of stuff that goes into the workmanship, will eventually clearly be seen for what it is. The mention of a day of judgment is not the focus here. We can look to other texts to get more of a sense of it, like 1 Thessalonians 5 or Hebrews 10.25, so I'm not going to go into that now. But I do want us to consider how we spend each and every day, and then it matters. And we should consider why we do what we do, because it matters. And how we live out as a church, because it matters. It makes a difference to people, and it makes a difference to God. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work
has any value. Gordon Fee continues, It's unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building, and perhaps countless other forms where systems have become more important than the gospel itself, will be shown for what it is, something merely human with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. The Corinthian church had lost its focus and it was using human wisdom. And that's easy for us to do as well. But we are called to build on the foundation of Jesus with the things that are imperishable. And what are imperishable? Works of love and kindness, generosity, both to our brothers and sisters and the wider community around us. Works of justice for widows, for orphans, for the disadvantaged. Works of encouragement to each other so that we mature in our faith and in our love for God. And living as a community so that people around can see who God is and be drawn to him. These are the things that have eternal value. And this is what we're called to do as we build on the foundation of Jesus. So, that's the foundation, the building, and now the last couple verses talk about the temple. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's saying that God's church is seen best when we're all together, living out our faith in community, day after day. You know, in Corinth, people went to the temple, worshipped, and then left the presence of the deity, hoping their deeds were enough to garner favor. But Paul is saying that for Christians, God dwells in the believers, not the physical structures, and he, he dwells in them continually. God doesn't claim to be dwelling in a building. He lives in the hearts of his people and all the more as they're gathered. The ultimate expression of worship for the church is seen not in Sunday gatherings, but in the community life of believers, whether large or small. Verse 17 says, For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And you know, that is true for us as much as it was for the Corinths. We, the church, are God's temple. Resting on the true and sure foundation of Jesus, building his kingdom with imperishable works, deeds, and truths that have eternal value. And as we gather in lower, large formal settings or informal groups or wherever, we're a testament to who God is and that he is love. You see, Everything about being the church starts with Jesus. And that's why Paul starts this passage in verse 10 by saying, because of God's grace to me. Because of God's grace to me. Let's think about that for a sec. This is Paul. Do you remember Paul? He spent the first part of his life as a misguided religious zealot persecuting Christians until God got a hold of him. And Paul then realized that all his good works, all his efforts to honor God, they all came to nothing. 
Paul knew that it was Jesus who reached out to him on the road. It was Jesus who reaches out to us in love and forgiveness by coming to this earth, taking on human flesh, and dying on the cross for us. It's not our works, but the grace of Jesus that helps us know that we're accepted and loved and that our lives have hope. And by this grace and the foundation of Jesus, we can be his church, doing his work in his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the foundation of Jesus and his grace that changes everything in our personal lives and in our community of faith, the church. Thank you that through that grace, we can know the joy of living for you and be the church you want us to be full of mercy and love and sharing your hope with the world all around us. Help us be your church, Lord, built on the foundation of Jesus. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, your son, who died for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.